Thank you for joining us at Hope Church. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. The sermon you are about to hear is from our series, The Book of James. If you're joining us for the first time, I wanna be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text NEW TO HOPE to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. I grew up with one younger brother. He was five and a half years younger than I am. So by the time he came along, my life was already pretty good, right? For five and a half years, I was the king of the castle. For five and a half years, everything went my way. For five and a half years, I kind of got what I wanted. And then my baby brother, Brett, came along. And my life was never the same again. Now, today, my brother and I have a great relationship. He pastors a church in North Alabama, and we get along tremendously, have a great relationship. But growing up, like a lot of siblings, especially being five and a half years apart, we did everything you can imagine. We fought, we competed, we argued more times than not. We didn't get along. And when that happened, I always felt like I drew the short end of the stick because being the baby, he could do no wrong, right? Anybody else grow up with brothers and sisters and can identify with that struggle? Let me see your hand. A lot of people that are in the room or watching online, you can identify with that situation. You had a brother, a sister, or siblings, or maybe if not siblings, cousins, or family members that live with you. I know Pastor Teddy, who I lead worship with everywhere I go with him in America and around the world, I meet more of his cousins. He's got cousins everywhere in every country on planet Earth. So maybe that's you. Teddy's the only child, but he has thousands and thousands of cousins. So maybe that's your story, maybe that's your situation, and you can identify, but can you imagine what it would have been like if your brother was Jesus? This weekend at Hope Church, we're beginning a study through a letter that was written by the brother of Jesus. It was his half-brother. Can you imagine how many times James, is the study that we're beginning this weekend, how many times James heard this question from his mother? Why can't you be more like your brother? How many times his parents, why can't you be more like Jesus? You thought you and I had it bad, right? Well, maybe you didn't realize Jesus had a family like that. But the reality is Jesus did have an earthly family. We just came through the holiday season. We celebrated Christmas. The fact that Jesus was born to the virgin Mary, but Mary was already engaged to a man to be married when she was with child through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus was born, then Mary and Joseph wed, and Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. They had other children in their family, brothers and sisters, who would have literally been the half brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, some of you are looking at me like, I've never heard that before. Well, I'm going to prove it to you. Look in the Bible. Matthew chapter 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown. He began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers? Read the first name out loud. James and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, four brothers of Jesus, and his sisters, sisters of Jesus, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get these things? And can you imagine how challenging it must have been growing up in the home where you are always compared to Jesus? Like every day of their lives had to be, I just can't, you're talking about identity issues, right? And then to get past that, They had to grow to understand this Jesus, who's been the perfect sibling that they could never measure up to, was not just their half-brother. Jesus was literally God who became a man and was the only hope of their salvation. I mean, for family members, that was probably kind of tough to wrap their hearts and minds around. As a matter of fact, the New Testament bears that out. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus begins his public ministry. And listen to what it says his family did. Jesus is doing miracles when his family heard what was happening. They tried to take him away. And here's what they said about him. He's out of his mind. His family saw Jesus begin to reveal who he is, begin to work miracles. And his family said, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. He's nuts. He's crazy. He's lost his mind. He grew up in Nazareth. I've been to his birthday parties. Like he's, he's nobody. What are y'all talking about? It made it very challenging for them to ever believe. That's why in John's gospel, as you get towards the end of Jesus's public ministry, now we've only got a couple of months left in Jesus's public ministry. Listen to what John's gospel tells us. For not even his brothers were believing in him. This isn't Jesus, a little kid. This is Jesus now having launched his public ministry well into his public ministry and his own brothers have still not accepted him as who he claimed to be. But that all changed after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Gospels tell us the story of Jesus taking all of our sin on himself and dying on a cross, rising again from the dead. And after Jesus rose again from the dead, he began to make appearances to his followers. Let me read it to you in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes about it. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. The leader of the disciples, Jesus appeared to Peter because he knew how instrumental he was going to be in the foundation of the church. Then to the 12, to the other disciples, Jesus appeared to them. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren, people that had believed in Jesus at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to, say it out loud. How about that? This brother who'd grown up with Jesus, who'd been compared to Jesus, who thought Jesus was crazy, who watched his whole public ministry and never believed in Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus goes to his brother 
And James seeing the resurrected Jesus finally broke and surrendered his life to following Jesus as God. And here's how we know that. A few pages later in scripture, in Acts chapter one, you find this group that, that, that watched Jesus' ascension on the hillside in an upper room in Jerusalem. And they're praying and they're begging God to send the Holy Spirit in power and to move. And when the, you can read it for yourself in Acts chapter one and verse 14, it lists the names of the people gathered in the upper room. Guess who was there? Now, by this time, all four of Jesus' brothers. All four of them are there with mom, Mary. She's in the room too and they're begging God to move. And you know what happened in the story of the opening pages of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit falls in power. Peter gets up and proclaims the gospel. The first church in Jerusalem is born as 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And guess who became the pastor of the very first church in Jerusalem? You got a guess? James. Mr. Late-to-the-party James <laughs> becomes the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. As you read the opening pages of the book of Acts, you see the church in Jerusalem face internal struggle. There was favoritism being shown in the church. There was racial tension, cultural tension in the church. By the time you get to Acts 6, they got a problem over that issue. James is leading them through that problem. By the time you get to Acts 8, they're facing such hostility and persecution from the politicians and the government that the church literally begins to scatter. It was so serious that Stephen, for preaching the gospel, was stoned to death. And the church in Jerusalem that James was pastoring on behalf of his brother Jesus is now being scattered all over the Roman Empire. And there's James, this pastor, with a heart for his church that's now been scattered and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, out of a pastoral burden, James sits down and writes what is chronologically the first letter written that we now have in our New Testament called the book of James. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it to James chapter 1. And we're launching today into a series that's going to carry us through much of this year in this letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. Look at it. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, you can tell something's happened in James' heart, right? Because let's be honest. If you and I were writing this letter, we'd have added a little bit to the introduction. James, <clears throat> the one who came from the same womb that Jesus came from. Uh, James, the one who pastored the first church of all the churches in the New Testament and the history of Christianity. Uh, that's me. Uh, James, the one who's writing the very first letter. But no, what did he say? James, a bond servant of God. And then this is important. And not my brother, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before I go any further in reading this, we're going to unpack the rest of it in just a minute. Let me just make this point. Nobody knew more about Jesus than James did. I mean, James knows stuff about Jesus you and I don't even know. There's a whole lot of Jesus' life from the time he was born to the time he was 12, from the time he was 12 to the time he was 30. We literally hardly know anything about that period in Jesus' life. James knows it all. 
Everything Jesus encountered, James saw it. Every meal Jesus ate, James was there. Every prayer Jesus prayed, James was listening. James knew everything there was to know about Jesus. But listen, here's what we learned from James. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus aren't the same thing. And here's what I've learned over the last 15 to 18 months about the church in America. There's a whole bunch of people that know about Jesus that don't know Jesus. And you can tell that by the way they're living their lives right now. Listen, knowing about Jesus, being able to articulate the stories, being able to to recount the gospel, being able to know some Bible verses is not the same thing as surrendering the control of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as we begin the book of James, let me compel you, if you just know about Jesus, let this be the day for the first time you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and invite him to be the king of your own heart. That's the starting message of the book of James. But then he goes on, look what he says. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed. The 12 tribes is a reference to his brothers and sisters in Christ who are uh, Jews who'd come to Christ in the first church and are now scattered because of persecution. He says, greetings to you. Then pick it up in verse number two. He says, consider it all Joy. Now, don't miss this. He's writing to the first church facing political opposition. He's writing to the first church facing spiritual persecution. He's writing to the first church that is suffering and scattered and experiencing hardship. And he's writing as a pastor and he says to them, consider it all joy. I want you to read those four words out loud with me, all right? We're going to read them together because I want you to know they're in the Bible. Let's read them together. One, two, three. Consider it all joy. Let's do it one more time, and this time I want you to do it with passion. Let's read it. One, two, three. Consider it all joy. 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, consider it all joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Could these verses be any more applicable to God's people than we are, than they are right now? What a word for us as a church family. We decided back last summer as a pastoral team, hey, let's, we prayed, we sought the Lord, landed on, we're going to study the book of James together, really having no idea how the back half of 2020, beginning of 2021 was going to go. But I'm telling you, as I read these words, they are so relevant for the church of Jesus Christ living right now in these times. And I want to share with you out of these verses, three truths to help us find joy in life's journey. Can anybody in the room today use some joy? Let me see your hand. If you can use some joy, just say amen. All right, let's look at it. Here's truth number one. There are things in life totally beyond our control. As we leave 2020 in our rearview mirrors, and face already uncertain circumstances and realities in 2021, we may understand the reality of that statement like never before, from pandemics to politics to the ability to buy toilet paper. There are things in life that are totally beyond our control. James, I love the way he says it. He said, consider it all joy when. 
not if, you encounter various trials. When. The word encounter means to fall into the middle of it. It means it's out of nowhere. You didn't see it coming. James said, listen, there are going to be things that are going to happen in your life that are totally outside of your control. They're going to catch you off guard and they're going to be tough. The word he uses to describe them is the word trials. Let me give you a definition of the word trial as we're going to talk about it today. Here's a trial. The inevitable circumstances that make life hard. Anybody got some of that right now? Anybody think back over the last 15, 18 months and say, yep, I get that. The inevitable circumstances that make life hard. Let me tell you three things about trials. Number one, trials are unavoidable. When? I've heard it said, you're either in a trial, you are coming out of a trial, or you are headed into a trial. Now, here's what that means. I want you to do something for just a minute. I want you to just look around you in this room. Just look around you. Catch the eye of a few of them. I know it's awkward and uncomfortable, but do it anyway. Just look around you for a minute. Nod your head at somebody. Have a moment of real contact with somebody. Just, just let them know you're there. Now, here's what I want you to realize. If what I just said is true, you just looked at some people that right now are maybe some of them in the midst of the deepest, darkest trial they've ever experienced personally in life. Now, I know we all put our church face on when we came in this morning, but, but I'm telling you, there's some people you just looked at, they're hurting today. They're going through a trial today. There's some people that you looked at, they, they just came out of one. They got the scars and the wounds and the, the battle. They, they just finished the trial. They're still emotional about it. There's some people that you looked at right now, they're good, but what they don't know is what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, here's why that's important. If we realize that all of us are facing unavoidable trials and some of us are either in one, coming out of one, or headed into one, here's what we ought to all do. We ought to all give a little more grace to each other. Rather than going ballistic and flipping tables every time somebody walks by you the wrong way, let's just understand trials are unavoidable. Let's up the grace measure with how we relate to each other. Trials are unavoidable. We're all going to have them. I want you to look at me. Look at me. Look me in the eye right now for just a minute. Listen, I want you to hear me very carefully. If you think somehow because you love Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, you are immune to difficulties, trials, hardships, and obstacles in life, you are deceiving yourself. We're not immune. Now, I know it's a popular philosophy in America for some preachers to write books and sell books and get on TV and say that if you'll just come to know Jesus, you can be healthy, you can be wealthy, all your problems will go away, there'll be more cars in the driveway, more dollar signs in the bank account, but I'm just telling you, that's not the story of this book, and any preacher with an ounce of biblical integrity cannot tell you that regardless how many books it sells. James said, when, not if, when you encounter various... Have you read this book lately? You know what this book is? A collection of stories of people that went through some tough stuff. I mean, just think about some of the people in this book. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start with a guy named Noah. What do you know about Noah? 
that he was a father of three sons? No. What do you know about Noah? The flood, right? I mean, you can't even say Noah without saying the word flood in the same sentence. Here's Noah minding his own business, raising his family. The only guy on earth that loved God, the most righteous man on earth. God comes, taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, you might want to get your tools together. Because it's about to get wet. Moses. Moses, a shepherd out minding his own business. The nation of Israel, the people of God had been, listen to this, in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. 400 years is longer than our nation's even been in existence. They'd been enslaved for 400 years. The entire civilization of Egypt was built on the backs of the slaves of the children of Israel. And after 400 years of captivity and slavery, God says to Moses, hey, go tell them, I'm making a promise. I got a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to lead them out of captivity. Moses goes, gets them all excited. They bolt out of Egypt. Don't get three days. Red Sea in front of them, Egyptian army behind them with blood in their eyes. When? You think about a guy like Daniel. What comes to mind? Daniel and the what? Yeah, for doing what? Praying. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What do you think about? Fiery furnace. You read the book of Job lately? Listen, if you need to feel better about your life, spend the afternoon reading the book of Job. You'll realize you ain't got it all that bad. The Psalms. I read Psalm 3 and 4 this morning. In Psalm 3 this morning, the psalmist said, there's 10,000 people out to get me. You know what a lot of the Psalms are? The Psalms are the psalmist crying out to God in the midst of suffering that they're facing. Hostility, persecution, obstacles, challenges. Then you get to the New Testament, Jesus. The Bible says of Jesus, he had nowhere to lay his head. How does that measure up with health and wealth, prosperity, gospel preaching? You can have it all, but Jesus couldn't even have a pillow? Jesus was persecuted, suffered, died a cruel death on a cross. The disciples, all the original disciples were murdered for their faith in Jesus. Murdered for their faith. Paul, the great missionary of the New Testament, the the hero of the the early church. Paul, (laughs) he was shipwrecked on an island. He was beaten multiple times. He was imprisoned. Half the letters he wrote, he wrote out of jail. And I'm not talking about jail with three square meals and a TV on the wall. I'm talking about tough. James, the author of this book. Did you know that James faced such hostility by the political and religious leaders of his day that he was persecuted his entire ministry? And historians tell us that when James died, he died because in anger, they drug James up to the top of the temple, threw him to the ground from the top of the temple, got wooden clubs and beat him to death. No wonder James said, when, not if. You encounter, when you fall into it. That, that word encounter, let me try to help you understand it. My, my wife and I this week relocated our daughter, our son-in-law, and our two grandchildren to Kansas City, Missouri for them to go to, my son-in-law to, to finish his bachelor's degree and to start seminary there in Kansas City. 
So I can't talk about it very much because it's, it's too early. I'm still raw. I'm emotional about it. Uh, not that my daughter and son-in-law over there, but that they took the grandkids with them. That's the deal, right? <laughs> like, y'all go. Y'all need it. They need to stay here. <laughs> but my wife, one of the things she loves to do with our grandkids, in our neighborhood, we got a little park. And in our park, there's just, it's just really an open area of grass. And she, my wife likes to take the grandkids down to the park and just let them run. Karis, she gets down, our oldest granddaughter, she gets, she's three years old. She gets down there, man, it's like Forrest Gump run. Like she just takes off and doesn't stop running. She just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. And one of the things about the little park in our neighborhood is for whatever reason, the way it's designed, there are some little uneven places. Like it's not totally flat, but you don't really see it. The grass covers it, makes it look like it's flat. So she'll get out there, man. She just run, 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 run. And before you know it, there's a hole, steps in that whole bam right on her face and then you know what that means right I mean the world just came to an end grandbaby fell on her face that's the word encounter you didn't see it coming you just minding your own business you just running along in life it looked like solid ground and the next thing you know right on your face Trials are unavoidable. Secondly, trials are unpredictable. He said when you encounter various trials, the word various, it's a Greek word that means multicolored or multifaceted. It's the word that would be used to describe a prism when you held it up to the sun and saw the array of light, the colors, the rainbow come out of that prism. David Platt says of that word, it it includes small trials and big trials, minor trials and major trials. Trials come in all shapes and sizes and forms. Some of you have walked today into this building and, and, and just in recent days, you didn't see it coming. You're just running along in life and out of nowhere, something that you never thought would affect you. Maybe 18 months ago, you thought, man, I'm about as secure in my job as I can possibly be. And in the last 18 months, everything has changed. And you find yourself with something that was unavoidable and complete. You'd have never guessed in a million years you'd be where you are right now in your job. Maybe it's not your job. Maybe it's your health. Maybe six months ago you thought, man, I'm about as healthy as I can possibly be. I'm a picture of health. And you go to one doctor's visit in an afternoon just for an annual checkup. And before you know it, you didn't see it coming. No way to predict it. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with your children. Maybe you thought everything was great. And one day they just up and storm out of the house and you hadn't seen them. Maybe it has something to do with a decision that you need to make regarding school or your future or career. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe six months ago, eight months ago, you thought, man, I'm as financially sound as I've ever been in my life. And here you sit today not knowing what you're going to do to pay the bills this month. It's unpredictable. Trials come in all shapes, sizes, and forms. Here's the third thing. Trials are uncomfortable. The word trial is a word that means external affliction. The word affliction, I looked it up in the dictionary, means something that causes pain or suffering. Trials are uncomfortable. They don't feel good. That's why if we had a table set up out in the lobby today to sign people up for trials, 
Nobody would stop by, right? We said, hey, just so you know, we got a new ministry starting. It's called our trial ministry. It's going to be painful and cause much suffering. You can sign up today in the lobby. People ain't even going to make eye contact with that table. It's going to be like getting on a plane at Southwest Airlines. Just don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Nobody got up this morning and said, Lord, here's my request today. Give me a good old painful suffering trial. Why? Because they're uncomfortable. Trials are unavoidable. Trials are unpredictable. Trials are uncomfortable. Let me give you the definition again. Trials are the inevitable circumstances that make life hard. Now, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Pastor, I thought you said you're going to give us a little joy. I'm not feeling much joy yet. Matter of fact, to be real honest with you, Pastor, this is pretty discouraging so far. But listen to what James said. Consider it all joy. The word consider is a word that means to lead or to go out in front of. And when it's used metaphorically like this, it means to lead out in the mind. What James is teaching us here is to make a choice in our mind that I'm not going to let this overwhelm me. I'm not going to let this weigh me down. I'm going to choose joy instead of sorrow or pity or questioning or complaining. My first response is to choose joy. I'm going to let my mind be not, listen, I'm not saying it feels good. I'm not saying I feel joy. I'm not saying don't worry, be happy, put a smile on your face. What I'm saying is we can as believers who are walking with Jesus in the midst of very difficult circumstances, make a decision to choose joy. You say, pastor, how is that possible? I'm so glad you asked. Let's look back at James chapter one, what he said. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. Now, if he'd stop right there, we'd have the command. Here's what you're supposed to do. We wouldn't know how to do it. The next word is the key. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What's the next word? Say it out loud. Oh, here's what he's saying. You can consider it all joy because you know something. You see, as followers of Jesus, we got some insider information. Things may look out of control. Things may look unpredictable. Things may look difficult and challenging. But James says we know something. And listen, it's not just that we know something. This word know is a Greek word that implies personal fellowship. It's knowledge gained through relationship. Knowledge gained through experience. Paul or James is writing to us here. And James is saying, listen, you in the midst of difficulty can choose joy, not just because you know something. He says you can choose joy because you know somebody. Who is it that we know? Well, that leads me to the second truth. We worship a God who's always in control. You see, there are things in life that are unavoidable, unpredictable, and uncomfortable that come into our lives that are totally outside of our control. But listen, they're not outside of his control. Our God is always in control. You and I may be surprised. You and I may be caught off guard. You and I may say, uh-oh, uh-oh. I didn't see this coming, but let me tell you something. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? God never turned on the TV and went, boy, I didn't see that coming. Happened to me Wednesday, Wednesday morning. I'm in the study all morning writing this message. 
preparing, praying, reading the scriptures, Wednesday morning. I don't come out till noon. I come out noon, turn the TV on. And you know what happened Wednesday. I'm like, what in the world is going on? I thought I was watching something happening in another country. And it's happening right here in America. I went, man, I'm shocked. God's never shocked. God's never surprised. God never says, uh-oh. I didn't see that coming. That caught me off guard. God is always in control. He's never surprised. We can count it joy because we know somebody who, even though right now what you're facing may look like it's totally out of your control, it's not out of his control. It's still in his hands. He's still sovereign. He's sitting on the throne. He's in control. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk wrote it this way. Listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive tree should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Now, the, the prophet Habakkuk was writing from an agricultural background. That's his culture. He's describing an apocalyptic event. There's no fruit on the trees. There's no fruit on the vines. There's no yield in the crops. There's no cattle in the stalls. The sheep have left the fold. He's describing a situation where everything is literally falling apart. And look what he says. Yet, here's what I'm going to do. I will exalt in the Lord. You know, he said, I'm going to choose joy. I rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he's made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. Let me give you a life application out of this. We cannot let our circumstances shape the way we view our God. We must let our God shape the way we view our circumstances. It's one of the reasons why the church in America has so lost its way this last year. We're running around and acting like nobody's in control. Listen, God is in control. He's in control. And we need to let our view of an understanding of God shape the way we view what's going on in the world, not let what's going on in the world shape the way we view our God. Let me try to help you grab it. Here's what I'm saying. Sometimes you will face circumstances in your life that don't feel good. Anybody say amen to that? Sometimes you're going to have stuff that doesn't feel good. Circumstances are tough. They're challenging. They don't feel good. Here's what happens. We can begin in our flesh to say because this doesn't feel good, it must mean that God is not good. And we begin to question the goodness of God in our very lives because we're deducing our view of God based on our perspective towards our circumstances. Or we look at a specific situation and say, this is hard, man. How can God love me? We begin to question, is God mad at me? Is God disappointed in me? Is God frustrated with me? Is God tired of me? When here's what James is saying, in those same circumstances... It's okay to say, God, this doesn't feel good. But here's what I know. You're good. And because you're good, there's going to come a moment in my life when I look back on this and see that even this was bathed in the goodness of God for me. It don't feel good right now. 
But there's going to come a day when I can look back and say, man, that was the goodness of God being displayed in my life. And so because of that, God, here's what I'm going to do today. I choose joy. I choose joy. Here's the last thing, and this is why we can choose joy. This is what we know about God. Look at this. Our God is at work in every trial to grow us in Christ and guide us into abundant living. He's at work in every trial. Let me show it to you back in James chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Excuse me, to verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Then verse 3. Knowing, here's what you know, that God's in control and that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know what the word endurance means? In the Greek language, it's a word that means staying power. Here's what that means. Every time you walk through a trial and you choose joy, guess what? The next one gets easier. Doesn't mean it feels better. Doesn't mean it's not tough. But you see God be God. And you see God in the midst of trials. And you see God's goodness and God's love and the perspective. The next time the trial comes, it doesn't mean the trial feels any better. But I mean, it's easier for me. There's more grace for me to choose joy because the trial has given me staying power. Then look what it says. And let that staying power, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word's perfect and complete. Quickly, the word perfect speaks to our position and our, our, our growth in Christ's likeness. It's a word that speaks to being full grown, being mature. It's the trials in our life that God is using to conform us to the image of Jesus so that out of the trial, we look more like him. The word complete is a word that speaks to wholeness, meaning that as Christ is formed in us and Christ begins to live through us, guess what we experience? The fullness, the wholeness of life that God has invited us into, the abundance of life that he promised. Here's what this means. Trials have not been allowed by God in your life to take something from you. Trials have been allowed to give something to you. That's why James closes by saying, lacking in nothing. I know you don't feel it right now, but listen, what you're in, God's in control of it, and he's going to use it to grow you up in Jesus and lead you to the fullness of the life he has for these verses that we've looked at today, God really taught me what I've shared with you today a little over eight years ago. It was in 2012. Our church was 12 years old. In March of 2012, we'd been, we'd been here 12 years, church about 11 years old. In March of 2012, we moved into this campus. We built the first two buildings over here on Cactus. We'd been for 11 years a church wandering around here in the wilderness, wandering in the desert. We're like the children of Israel. We used to tell people, come if you can find us. We met in nine different locations in our first 11 years. Finally, much prayer and work and effort and giving and leadership. And finally, March of 2012, we got a place to call our own. Three months. Three months we occupied these buildings in Las Vegas, experienced what was called the 100-year flood. And our property was right in the middle of the river running through Las Vegas. You'll see some pictures up here on the screen. Our entire campus that we'd been in for three months flooded and was underwater. 
If you were here at that time and you saw it, when I first arrived on the scene, the water was up to about my waist. It was, it was such a river running through our campus. The fire department had to come and rescue personnel. They had to get our administrative assistants in the office and carry them out of the buildings on their shoulders and get them to safety. Now, you know what these floods are like in Las Vegas. It came and went in about two hours. And what was left was about eight to nine inches of mud, million dollars worth of damage on our brand new three-month-old campus. And there was a lot of me that wanted to cash in my chips and just be done, to use a Vegas analogy. But man, I watched our church in the midst of what looked like a very unavoidable, unpredictable, you're talking about unpredictable. I mean, I'm from Alabama. When I moved to Las Vegas, I knew we'd have problems. I knew we'd have challenges, but it's a desert. I didn't think one of them would be a flood. Talking about uncomfortable. I watched our church rally together and began to clean this place up. We never missed a weekend service. Our church just labored for three days. The community came, helped out. Everybody showed up with buckets and squeegees and shovels and wheelbarrows. And that Sunday was coming, and I had to say something to our church. Like, y'all show up every week expecting us to have a sermon regardless of what happens to us this week, right? So I had to have something to say. What do you say? Pastor Travis and I, we just sat down, we prayed, we talked, and God led us to James chapter 1. And that Saturday morning before that Sunday, I wrote this journal entry. I went and picked, I found this old journal. It's dated August 25th, 2012. Here's what I wrote. Three days ago, our new permanent campus at Hope flooded, exclamation point. When I drove up and saw it underwater, I couldn't believe the tragedy before my eyes. In that moment, I had no idea the expression of love and faithfulness that that was from my Heavenly Father. You have been so faithful to us in the storm. Forgive me for so often thinking that you have forgotten about us. Forgive me for letting my circumstances shape my attitude towards you instead of you shaping my attitude towards my circumstances. Then here's the line I want you to hear. I don't know the rest of the story yet, but I know the one who's writing it, and he loves me. Today, I choose joy. And now here I sit, eight, nine years later, what seemed like a life-altering, unavoidable, unpredictable, un comfortable circumstance. Now I look in this room and I see what God's done in our fellowship. I see how God grew us through that. For those of you who are here in that moment, you realize, you know this, over the next five weekends, so many people visited our church because they saw our story on the news. We saw 200 people come to know Christ for the very first time. What looked like a very unloving, not good thing happened to be the exact thing God wanted to do to show us his goodness and his love for us and to grow us in Christ's likeness. And here's what I'm telling you. As true as it was for James, as true as it was for us, whatever you're facing right now, here's what I want you to know. I don't know how the story's going to end, but I know who's writing the story, and he loves you. So today, choose.